This podcast is a production of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. It is made possible by grant funding from the Academy of Teaching Scholars at the University of Oklahoma. The views expressed in this podcast are based on the participants' research, but at times may represent their expert opinion only. Thanks for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Our guest is Dr. Brianna Gibson. Dr. Gibson is an assistant professor in the Department of OBGYN. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Gibson. Well, thank you for having me. On the podcast today, I'd like to talk about something that our residents love to do, but don't get much experience in that often. I'm talking about operative vaginal delivery, as in vacuums and forceps. Dr. Gibson, you do a lot of teaching on this topic, so I'm hoping you can provide us with some historical perspective, as well as a good breadth of information about when and how safely to use operative vaginal delivery. I hope I can. In the U.S., about 4% of all deliveries are done via via an operative vaginal approach. The majority of these are done via vacuum, with only about a half of a percent done using forceps in today's age. Both methods do have a very high success rate. The modern forceps are thought to have been invented by Peter Chamberlain of England around 1600. There have been more than 700 different type and shapes of forceps. Simpson in 1845 and DeLee in 1920 both made modifications to the forceps that are still used today, and there are types of forceps that bear their names. Ah, I've seen these on labor and delivery. Why were forceps invented in the first place? Well, originally, uh, women were heavily sedated during labor, so assistance was often necessary. Also, in the 1970s, it was felt that fetal morbidity and mortality was higher in the second stage of labor um, if it exceeded more than two hours, so assistance was then paramount. We now know that in the setting of reassuring fetal surveillance, this is not necessarily true at all. Also, cesarean delivery has become much safer, so the necessity of operative vaginal delivery to spare the mother's life and limb is now gone. Okay, that makes sense. Now that we know the history, tell me about why I should choose to do an operative vaginal delivery. Well, one of the indications is a prolonged second stage. This includes nulliparous women with failure to deliver within three hours without an epidural or four hours with regional anesthesia. Are multiparous women with failure to deliver after one hour without anesthesia or two hours with anesthesia? Another indication is suspicion of immediate or potential fetal compromise during that second stage of labor. This would be a Category 3 or a persistent Category 2 fetal heart rate tracing. You can also consider shortening of the second stage for maternal benefits with an operative vaginal delivery. This includes maternal exhaustion or comorbid conditions such as cardiac or pulmonary disease that prevents a woman from pushing. However, before you perform an operative vaginal delivery, you should ask yourself some important questions. Like, how many more of these do I need to do to complete the minimum number for my ACGME requirements, right? Very funny, but no. Like, is the head engaged? Is the cervix fully dilated? What's the position of the, the baby's head? Is the pelvic, uh, the pelvis adequate? What's the estimated fetal weight? And most importantly, do I know what I'm doing with this instrument I'm about to use? Those are all great questions. I have another question for you. Why shouldn't I do a vacuum-assisted or forceps-assisted delivery? Because it seems like I really want to do them. I feel like lots of residents do. But if you answer no to any of the questions above, or even I don't know, you should stop or at least proceed with caution. Also, operative vaginal delivery is not recommended in a gestational age less than 34 weeks 
or if a known bone demineralization or bleeding disorder is known in the fetus. Finally, if your patient refuses to give informed consent for an operative delivery, then you can obviously not proceed. Ah, informed consent. Always tricky. That's a great point. So how do I consent someone for an operative vaginal delivery? What are the risks? Are there any benefits besides improving my skills? There is about a 5% risk of serious complications with a vacuum-assisted vaginal delivery. Serious maternal complications are rare, but common maternal complications do include vaginal or cervical laceration. Neonatal intracranial hemorrhage and subgaleal hemorrhage are life-threatening complications that are of particular concern. However, the rate of these very um, severe complications is low. Cerebral hemorrhage is about 1 in 800 for a vacuum-assisted vaginal delivery or 1 in 600 for a forceps-assisted vaginal delivery. And most importantly to consider, about 1 in 1,000 for a C-section during labor. Oh, wow. So if my patient's already pushing and I choose to do a C-section, the risk of intracranial bleeding is not that far off uh, compared to doing a vacuum-assisted or forceps-assisted delivery that's successful. Indeed. And that's something not many people know. There isn't a significant difference between those things. Other complications include scalp lacerations, acephalohematoma, subgaleal hematoma, retinal hemorrhage, and hyperbilirubinemia. There is a higher incidence of cephalohematoma, retinal hemorrhage, and jaundice using a vacuum as compared to forceps. The mother must be aware of these risks and give consent to a vacuum-assisted vaginal delivery. Cesarean section in the second stage of labor is an option, but also carries a significant morbidity and implications for future births. Remember that cesarean delivery in the second stage of labor is associated with an increased risk of maternal morbidity, so a safe and successful operative vaginal delivery has a great benefit to the mother. I can attest to that. Man, you get that head really deep in the pelvis, trying to do a C-section, extensions, excessive bleeding, acne, I've seen all of it. Okay, I should also tell my patient about an episiotomy, right? I'm supposed to do an episiotomy with an operative delivery, right? No, so an episiotomy doesn't have to happen with routine operative vaginal delivery. Evidence would suggest that perineal trauma is no better and, in fact, might even be worse with an episiotomy if it's performed in the setting of an operative vaginal delivery. Hmm, that's good to know. Okay, I know that this audio format isn't the best way to teach us how to use forceps or vacuums, but can you tell me about how you select your instrument and when you decide to use it? What's your experience? Of course. So people that have trained recently are much more familiar with vacuums as forceps have been uh, declining in recent years. So I, myself, use a rigid or hard cup vacuum um, because I have the most experience with it. Soft cups, however, are appropriate for most deliveries, but a rigid cup is less likely to detach from the fetal head. I then ensure, of course, that my pelvis is adequate. I must know the estimated fetal weight. Um, there's some evidence to suggest that an instrumented delivery of a macrosomic infant, or really any infant over 4,000 grams, is associated with an increased risk of injury. Then I want to ensure that I know the position and the station of the fetal head. I feel like this is the thing that residents struggle with the most, so if they're not sure, they should always ask an upper level or their attending. Ideally, you want the fetal head to be at least two-plus station. This can be done by palpating the ischial spines internally, or even better, palpating the fetal head that remains above the pubic symphysis. Then, I want to place the cup of the vacuum edge in front of the posterior fontanelle, remembering that the flexion point, uh, I want to place it at the center of the flexion point. This is about three centimeters in front of that fontanelle. 
Once the cup is placed, make sure there isn't any cervix or vagina involved because you don't want to cause an injury to tissue that shouldn't be behind the vacuum. And then you're going to increase the vacuum pressure to about 450 millimeters of mercury. Now, most residents never know what that number is, and they say things like the green zone on the Kiwi vacuum, which is exactly right, but the number is still important. You then want to apply traction as the mother pushes. I start with an angle towards the floor and then increase upward about 45 degrees as the fetal head emerges, mimicking the same birth movements that would happen in a normal delivery and expulsion of a fetus. Fantastic. I like what you said about palpating the head internally and externally. I've read about, you know, feeling how many finger breaths you can feel ahead above the pubic symphysis, and that can really tell you where your head is, especially when you have a lot of molding or caput. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about when we should abandon the procedure for something safer or different in the setting of going towards a C-section. Sure. So if you can't place a vacuum of forceps, then you obviously can't complete the procedure. This is more common with forceps as they are technically more challenging to place. Now, you might be technically able to place a vacuum without incorporating the the vagina or the cervix, and it doesn't mean it's in the correct spot, though. With forceps, you have to articulate the blades, so you can have more difficulty with placement, because if your blades aren't articulating, you're obviously not placing them right. So there's a little bit of a stop there that tells you this isn't correct, whereas with the vacuum, there's no um, part of the vacuum that tells you you're not in the right place. You have to rely on yourself for that. Then, um, for me, once my vacuum is placed, if I have no descent with traction, I need to start rethinking my plan. Um, And I think this is an important concept. Um, It doesn't mean you need to pull harder. (laughs) Based on an increased risk of trauma with more than three pulls, I suggest abandoning the procedure if there's no progress with three pulls with the vacuum. Additionally, if the total vacuum time approaches 20 minutes, there is definitely an association of poor outcomes, and so the procedure should be abandoned at that time. Probably what most of us are familiar with is the three pop-off rule, where we abandon after the vacuum pops off three times. Vacuums are designed to release if there's too much traction or pull on them. So this would indicate that there's no descent with that traction that you're applying. Wow, that's really good information to know. I like the idea that, you know, if I pull three times and I have no descent, then I need to stop. Um, If I pull three times and the baby's moving, then of course I can continue on with a good window of time and remembering that 20 minutes in the back of my mind so that I don't have the vacuum on too long. Exactly. One last thing that I want to address is using a combination of vacuum and forceps. ACOG suggests avoiding sequential attempts at operative vaginal delivery. Population-based data has reported an increase in maternal and neonatal morbidity from sequential application of vacuum and forceps. There's up to two and a half times the risk of subdural or cerebral hemorrhage when both instruments are used as compared to one alone, and that's huge. The reason we so carefully consider whether someone is a good operative uh, vaginal delivery candidate is because we want our attempt to be successful. So if we choose the right patient, we can safely and effectively perform an operative vaginal delivery and avoid the risks of a failed attempt and some of the complications that may occur um, after a failed vacuum. Uh, Because the exact same things you were talking about, difficulty delivering the infant, extension of the hysterotomy, delayed time from hysterotomy to delivery, all occur. Um, in greater numbers when you've pulled and used traction to even more securely force the baby down into the pelvis. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Gibson. That was really excellent. Is there anything else we should take home from this talk? Well, I think we have to emphasize informed consent for operative vaginal delivery. 
This means that you should address the issue with your patients during routine prenatal care. It's important to discuss what events might happen during a delivery that could introduce new risks. If your patient is well informed prior to labor about an operative vaginal delivery, C-section, or episiotomy, and other procedures, then they're better able to make an informed decision during the flurry of labor. The other point is you can't give informed consent or take informed consent if you yourself don't know uh, enough about the procedure. So making sure that you're well-educated will then ensure that you are able to counsel your patient appropriately. That's great advice. Well, that's all we have for you today. If you'd like a copy of the transcript from today's podcast or if you have comments or questions, please email me at katie-smith at ouhsc.edu. That's K-A-T-I-E dash S-M-I-T-H at O-U-H-S-C dot E-D-U. Stay tuned for further podcasts from the Department of OBGYN here at the University of Oklahoma.